My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is the science fiction author, futurist, and polymath, Ken Liu. Ken has one of the most beautiful minds I've ever encountered and a heart just as big to match. He's an American author of speculative fiction and has won all the awards there are to win here in America for his writing, along with top genre honors in Japan, Spain, and France, and many other countries. I first encountered his writing in a collection of short stories called The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. And in that debut collection, the title story, The Paper Menagerie, which is about a young boy rediscovering the magic and beauty of a heritage he tried to reject is one of the most beautiful and subtle pieces of fantasy I've ever read, and it brought me to tears. Every time I read it, it brings me to tears. He also just recently put the, the last two volumes in his massive silk, silk punk epic series, The Dandelion Dynasty. He just sent them to copy edits. The first two volumes are out to read now. He has written a Star Wars novel. He's written stories that have been adapted into multiple film and television projects, including Netflix breakout adult animated series Love, Death, and Robots, and AMC's Pantheon. Prior to all of this, he was an engineer, a software engineer, a corporate lawyer, a litigation consultant. And when he's not writing, you can find him speaking at conferences and universities around the world on topics including futurism, cryptocurrency, the history of technology, bookmaking, the mathematics of origami, the list goes on. Meeting someone like Ken can, particularly after that introduction, can sound intimidating, but he is so grounded and so committed to the human experience. Really just one of the most lovely, thoughtful, caring people I've ever met. He is no naive optimist, but he believes in humanity. And although his stories often force us to or challenge us to look at the darkest aspects of our lives and our pasts, he also offers hope for the future. So, let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Ken has for us. Ken, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, I can confidently say that there's no way we can talk about all the things I want to talk to you about in an hour. So I'll do, <laughs> I'll do my best to pull on the threads, but I'm really so excited to have you in this space because your writing and your, what I might describe as your leadership in the field has really impacted me a lot as a writer, as an artist, and as a human being. 
and I just appreciate the stand that you take uh, for art, for human experience, for understanding each other more deeply and more expansively. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, it's really great to be here and talking to you. Yeah, thank you. I had a chance to hear you speak a couple of years ago at a writer's conference, the Hollyhock Conference in New Bedford, which I actually came to at your recommendation. And um, one thing I really remember, one thing that really sticks for me from what you shared was your wisdom around staying connected to what's in your sphere of control and letting go of that which isn't. And you talk specifically from the lens of a writer. As a writer, there's a, a lot of pressure or longing or desire for accolades, for awards, for external validation that all this time and energy you're putting in means something. Um, and your, your gift to the audience filled with aspiring writers, some of whom have maybe never published a thing and others who've maybe published many, many things, was the reminder to stay connected to the work, to stay connected to the, the craft day in and day out. And, I, and that was a, I really needed to hear that at that particular moment three or four years ago. So what I want to do if we start there is just see how, how has that evolved for you since then? I mean, you've, you've, since that time, already you were really making, building a career for yourself as a writer. And since that time, it seems to me that that career has only grown and expanded and, and tendrils have, have kind of creeped out into gaming and into, into to video and into television. And, and, and you've now finished this huge series, the third of which is going to be published soon. So like, where are you now in relationship to that question of, of the external versus the internal? And how do you stay grounded? That's, that's a perfect place to start, Andy. Um, I feel that uh, this whole idea of whether you want to be uh, centered on yourself versus being driven by external um, motivations is related to a very old Buddhist idea um, mm. of, of the source of all pain really is desire. Um, mm. and, and I think that has become even more resonant for me uh, as I age. Um, so let me, let me go uh, back to what you said earlier and start from that point. Um, I think um, as writers or really as creatives, creatives of any kind, there are primarily two modes in which you engage in creativity. One is out of fear and the other is out of love. Um, when you're doing so out of fear, um, it is not likely to lead to your best work. And I think so many of us, uh, when we start out or even later on, when we're driven by the need to get recognition, to, to, to be praised, to have others understand you exactly the way you wish to be understood, I think these things are actually all sources of fear uh, mm -hmm. because ultimately they're about what happens if I don't get these things? Um, so, mu so much of our insecurity, so much of our angst, our unhappiness uh, just come from this, this, this idea that we need that external validation to really feel like we've accomplished something. Um, you know, when you're engaged in the arts, this is sort of inevitable because there's no objective measure um, of, of, whether you've done good or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we end up relying on what other people say about our work to judge mm -hmm. its worth. 
But that that way lies madness. We all know it, but we we can't help but fall into the trap of it. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a story from my own personal experience about how how this ended up being so important to me. Um, you know, I actually started publishing uh, almost two decades ago, uh, so a long time ago. Um, and um, when I first started publishing, um, I was seized with this very complicated set of emotions about what to write because, as a writer from um, uh, as a writer of Chinese descent, uh, writing in the U.S., um, many of us um, uh, writers of Chinese descent uh, who are Americans feel compelled to tell stories that in some way fit with the perceived or accepted conventional um, uh, story that people expect from writers mm -hmm. like us, uh, meaning they want to hear the idealized immigrant tale. Uh, they want to hear the story about how folks struggled uh, to, quote unquote, become American. Um, they want to hear stories about exotic Chinese customs. Uh, and because this is the mode in which a lot of writers of Chinese descent uh, who have succeeded in America, mm. it ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it, it seems like the only stories that publishers are interested in publishing and the only stories that readers are interested in reading are stories that in some way draw on that cultural experience mm. and become um, stories about that. Um, and naturally, of course, um, what that means is many of, many of us become resistant to it. Uh, we mm -hmm. deliberately don't want to tell stories like that because why we not, nobody wants to be defined by other people's expectations. So, you know, the, 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 the idea is why can't we write stories that are treated as universal? Why is it that our stories must be taken as a type? Why must they be pigeonholed into merely instantiations of some stereotypical story. Why can't we tell stories that are completely unexpected the way um, writers who are not of Chinese descent mm. get to do? Mm. So that ends up um, becoming uh, a great fear for me. I deliberately wrote all of my stories with no quote-unquote Chinese elements in them at all. Mm. And that was how all my earliest stories were. Um, and then after a while, I realized that I was writing out of fear because the entire motivation for me to write that way was out of a fear of being misunderstood, of being treated as a stereotype. Mm. But in doing so, I was in fact being driven entirely by other people's expectations, just in a negative way. Mm. It's not that I was writing to fulfill their expectations of me, but I'm now writing in defiance of their expectations. Of me. Mm. But that means mm. stories that are actually important to me about the immigrant experience, I don't get to tell. Stories that are mm. important to me about the larger perspective of America's place in the world, I don't get to tell. Stories about what it's like to live an American life from a perspective that is not in that is not so well represented. What does that feel like? I don't get to tell those stories. So it, it feels like I'm dancing with one foot tied. Uh, mm -hmm. behind my back mm -hmm. uh, or or speaking with only half um, of my, you know, my, my brain. Uh, and it, it just didn't work anymore. Um, and then the, the, the revelation for me 
uh, was recognizing that I was writing mostly out of fear rather than out of love. And I was trying to recenter myself on uh, the love that my grandmother gave me for storytelling, uh, what it was like to hear her tell me stories when I was a kid and what it was like for me to take her stories modify them and tell them to my friends and entertaining them what it felt like to read um uh old fairy tales and to retell versions of those fairy tales with my own twist what it felt like to make up stories um myself as a five-year-old and illustrating them with color pencils um i was trying to rediscover all of those joyful things uh, that, 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 that I used to, to do. I mean, you know, if you think about it as a kid, you made art, you told stories. My daughters do this all the time and they do so not because they want to get YouTube viewers, not because mm-hmm. they care about publishing mm-hmm. advances, not because they care about whether I will, uh, exclaim wonder or joy at their creation. They do so solely because it's fun to create. <laughs> this is one way to feel human. And I, I wanted to recapture that. Um, and once I recapture that, I no longer cared about whether my stories are um, uh, about my own experiences or about my imagination or whatever. I actually just stopped caring what other people thought about it. Uh, I made it a point to not read reviews, to uh, refuse to um, listen, because you know, one of the funny things is when you're on Twitter, um, you know, uh, or on Facebook, strangers feel it's really important to come at you and tell you how much they hated your work. This seems to be a very important part of, of the Twitter experience. Yeah. I've never understood that. It, it's very interesting, but they, 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 they really feel that this is very important. So I made it a point to start blocking people and just filter that out and not actually bother looking at it. Um, and I was much happier. Um, and I just started not worrying about any of those external things. I, I went back to the old Buddhist mantra, you know, desire is the root of all pain. So mm-hmm. don't crave recognition. Don't crave other people's praise. Did you make something that made, made yourself happy? Mm-hmm. Did you create mm-hmm. something that in the process of doing so made you see the world in a new way? Did you do when you finished writing that story, telling that story, um, creating that story, did you feel that the world got a little bit better uh, for you? Um, and uh, that's what I started focusing on. And, you know, the amazing thing about that is once I stopped caring how other people felt about my story, I had much more success um, as measured by conventional means. But more importantly, I had much more success measured by own by my own metrics, which is whether I was happy doing what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> if you're not happy telling stories, then why are you even doing it? Yeah. Um, so once I stopped focusing on how other people, uh, what other people wanted to say about my stuff, and I just focused on what I wanted to say and how I felt about it, and whether I told the story I wanted to tell. That was my only metric. Did I tell the story I wanted to tell? Um, if I could do that, I was happy. And if I could not, then I'll, I'll try to get better. Uh, and I was much happier. And uh, as a side effect, uh, somehow I ended up having more success uh, commercially. Um, it's just one of those things where uh, it seems like um, the less you you fear and care about other people's opinions, the more you will do it out of love. And I think people respond to that. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. And I get the sense even in, uh, you know, you write some stories that are quite 
at least from where I sit, can be quite uncomfortable to read because you really are holding the holding up a, a picture of reality to the reader that is pointing to towards a lot of issues around things like imperialism and colonialism and and violence and prejudice and racism. Like you, you're not afraid to go to those places, and yet your stories also, or maybe because of that, your stories have a real sense of a love and care for the human condition. And, and that, so that love you're describing, at least as I'm interpreting it, comes through in what I read and hear of what you're doing. So I'm really... I, I do believe that. I, I think you really have to love yourself and love the very process um, of creating art. And that is how you end up loving other people um, mm. from your family to everyone else. I mean, when you're writing as a, as a writer, you really have to have a love both for yourself, for the reader, for, for the story, and also for the reader. Um, and you, you, how can you write a, because fundamentally, I think storytelling is how we human beings practice and in fact enact uh, our empathy, which is our most human quality. But how can you do that if you don't have love for your reader? Um, and your characters, um, and, and fundamentally the self that you're, you're enacting in the process of telling that story. I, I think those are inseparable. So you have to do it. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I hope for anyone who's listening that hearing that distinction between whatever you're creating, if you're creating from a place of fear, you might, you, you are almost certainly undercutting the very spirit and energy that you're trying to connect to. Yeah. And by the way, the people who are trolling you on Twitter and Facebook and stuff are probably, my guess is, although I don't know them personally, they're probably coming from acting from a place of fear as opposed to. I think that's right. I think that is exactly (laughs) right. Yes. Um, So I really, I really have, um, you know, a sense of compassion for them. But at the same time, I really don't need to um, be driven by them. I mean, none of us should be driven by that. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like they are if we were to sort of apply a fantastical lens to the experience, it's almost like they are the embodiments of some of these fear demons or fear spirits <laughs> that, are, that want to try and get inside. It's just sort of like, how do you sort of let, let them all be so that you can stay really grounded in what matters? That's right. Yeah, That's right. I like that. The, so um, I haven't read the, the paper menagerie and other stories in a few years, um, but I did just finish reading the hidden girl and other stories. Like literally I read the last story cutting this morning, which, was awesome and but my my overall impression like they feel very much of a piece but my overall impression based on you know faulty memory which by the way cutting is all about we can talk about memory (laughs) and that is that is that paper menagerie and other stories played with questions of of identity and technology and um space travel really from a, a more kind of very intimate, kind of what, what was the impact on the, the, the character? And, and that intimacy is very much what I, t- at least what I took away, what I'm re- still remembering having read it a few years ago. That intimacy is still present in so many of the stories of Hidden Girl, but it also, it also feels like you're leaning into some of the bigger questions or the bigger realities that relate to geopolitics and um, uh, economics and corporate influence. And it just, it did like the sort of 
and there's some way in which, to me at least, the scale seems to be more complex, that you're working with the interplay of bigger forces and how those forces then drop down into the lives of your really, really beautiful three-dimensional characters. Is that, is my impression right? Are you resonating with that? Or is there, is there I think so. There? Yeah, I, I love the way you put it. Um, the, the two collections are very different and they do reflect this evolution of my, my own, you know, relationship towards um, who I'm telling stories for and, and what it means to create out of love. So as I'm, sort of described a little bit in the introduction to The Hidden Girl and other stories. Uh, the Paper Menagerie and other stories is a very different collection in many ways because in some ways it's an externally driven collection. Mm. Um, the stories in that story were picked largely because they got awards and mm. they got very, um, they, they were popular. Um, so uh, when you put your first collection out, in some ways that's inevitable because publishers are saying, okay, we have to sell this. What can we put on the covers to convince people to buy it? Did this thing win awards? You know, well, what happened? Um, so the Paper Menagerie and Other Stories is oftentimes um, driven really by what I call star ratings. You know, mm. what, what did the tomato meter equivalent say about <laughs> it? Let's put yeah. that together. Yeah. But that's that's being driven by other people's opinion. Uh, and so when I was putting together the second collection, I sort of recentered myself and thought, okay, now that um, I'm getting a chance to put a collection together, um, I'm, I'm no longer under the pressure as I was with the first collection to, you know, present some sort of image of success. Can I can I put together a collection that reflects more of where I am as a writer without regard for any of that? So um, one of the primary um, motivations for the second collection is let's put together something that only, uh, that mostly, that, that ranks high in the meter of, did I tell the story I wanted to tell? Mm. That's the criterion mm. I wanted to measure mm. stories by. Mm. So let's ignore how other people reacted to it. Some of these stories were completely ignored. Some of the stories got a lot of, uh, generate a lot of controversy. Don't care about that. Let's see if the story actually told the story I wanted to tell. Um, so I put together these stories. And then when I got them together, my editor, Joe Monti at Simon Schuster, went through them and put them into a meta, uh, into some sort of, into an order that he perceived in them. And a, a meta narrative that I didn't even realize emerged, which is, these are really stories, like you say, about the intimacy of, of how cataclysmic Cosmic change affect the individual character, but also they're really stories about scale in mm. the way that I had not understood um, mm. until I look at them together. And here's what I mean. Um, for a long time, I've held to this philosophy of writing speculative fiction that I think uh, is, uh, I, I, I do think this is shared by a lot of people, but maybe not. But my opinion is, even though I work as a futurist uh, and a technologist, I don't actually think science fiction in particular is really about predicting the future mm -hmm. at all. Uh, I, I just don't. I, I don't. I don't think science fiction has done a good job of it, and I don't think that's why it's interesting. Um, I certainly don't try to predict the future in my science fiction. Um, when I do write sci-fi, what I really want to do is to use the tropes of sci-fi as a kind of um, lens or filter through which to view reality in the same way that when you take a photograph and you apply a certain filter to it, 
details emerge that you wouldn't otherwise see, mm. uh, patterns that you can't otherwise see come out when you when you when you apply a color filter or some sort of transformation you see things that otherwise you don't see about the reality you captured so science fiction is a particular means of applying these kind of filters to reality so that you can mm -hmm. see aspects of reality right now that you don't otherwise notice when you're writing a realist mode so what i discovered uh, uh, is that the stories in The Hidden Girl and other stories are largely about problems of scale in the modern world. Uh, and Byzantine empathy might be the most uh, um, obvious version of this. But one of the, one of the fun, central themes in that story is that um, all empires are bad. All large-scale um, authority structures that seek to impose a universal order upon many, many, many localized individuals is a bad thing, regardless mm. of what ideology drives them. Um, and I think this is sort of replicated across the world in so many ways. We Facebook is bad, not because it's run by the wrong person or whatever. We don't need to treat Facebook as a national security threat and force Mark Zuckerberg to sell it, um, which I suppose would be one solution. I, I don't think that would be a solution because it doesn't really matter who's in charge of it. Mm. Its fundamental scale is its problem. The mm. idea of connecting everyone in the world with everybody else is fundamentally a bad idea. Oh. Uh, it, it is. It is when we seek to remove the local for the universal, when we seek to make most people no longer care about who their local representative and state government representative is, but care only about who is the president, something has gone horribly wrong. Mm. Um, human beings are not meant to care solely about universal centralized power structures. We're meant to care about what is local, what is actually within our control, what is actually within our sphere of influence and what is human scaled. Um, mm. Facebook, great empires, United Nations, what have you. These things are not human scaled. Mm. They are the root of the problem with modernity. Um, and uh, so many of the things that we have in the world are like that. Um, another recent obsession of mine is the whole idea of um, uh, international travel. Uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, a little, little bit of a radical here. Um, I, I think international travel is a terrible thing. Um, uh, what I mean is this. I've actually written a, a story about this. Uh, so a lot of times we talk about how um, physically traveling around is, is, is one of the great things about modernity. I, I think that's a deep misunderstanding, and then I, I completely disagree with it. You have many people who are well-meaning good people who try to recycle, who try to drive electric cars, who try to be good to the planet. But they can be doing this for years, and all of that work is undone the minute they get on an inter intercontinental jet and fly across the ocean to spend their summer holiday somewhere. Um, that's all gone. Uh, that, that's one of the most destructive things you can possibly do. The, the idea of moving so much goods and people around the globe mm. um, with, by flying, by with, with cruise ships, what have you, um, these are all incredibly destructive, terrible things. One of the great 
horrible things about globalization really is this idea that we're moving so much stuff across the planet, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, the destruction to the environment, the destruction to local resiliency, um, you know, just think about how there was a scare early on um, during the pandemic about our meat supply. And the reason we were so terrified was because so much of our meat um, apparently is is processed in just a few centralized meatpacking plants so that, you know, despite the, 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 the vaunted um, redundancy of our supply chains, we apparently have a few very centralized yeah. large-scale points of vulnerability. But that's true everywhere. You look at everything that we do, these kind of centralized points um, needed for economies of scale are they're everywhere and they're the source of problem they are what makes us vulnerable they are what makes us uh, not resilient there is they they make us fragile they lead to all sorts of problems um, so you know my 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 uh, if you can say there's one theme running through the hidden girl and other stories is this concern with how scale and this relentless need for "Quote unquote efficiency and the way we drive up scale, uh, the scale of nations, the scale of authorities, the efficiency of surveillance states. Um, these are all driven by the same hunger for so-called GDP efficiency, economic yeah. efficiency, what have you. And and we have completely, once again, been driven by fear rather than a love of of life itself. Uh, and I think it's it's the root of all." problems, really. Building things too large, too inhuman in scale is the source of, is the root of our problems. Wow. Oh, that's so much to take in. I need to just take a moment with that, Ken. I think there's, um, as you were sharing that, I was noticing like three or four different directions I wanted to go. A part of me wants to sort of, the really kind of optimistic part, part, of, me, part of me wants to say like, well, it, it's just a problem of, of, finding the right technology once we have airplanes that don't uh, you know <laughs> blow out so much carbon and like just you know like we'll, we'll figure that out and i'm like okay nope that's not where ken's going there's another part of me though that's saying that's saying well the genie's kind of out of the bottle we already have um we have we have what we might call globalized nodes in the network that are local but the, um, so you have, you know, in America, for instance, you have cities where you have many different kind of expressions of that global network coming together in the form of people interacting and living their lives. So, so if we were to try and kind of pull the, sort of cut those strands, you would have then all of these, these people who, who had attachments to other parts of the network who now are kind of cut off from that. And and so I'm, I'm I want to see if we can together just feel into that paradox because I I find myself agreeing with you and I find myself saying that if that if I if we just waved a wand and erased yeah. those that global network we'd be left with quite a lot of strife and suffering. You're you're absolutely right. This is the central paradox of modernity. I mean, you know, we didn't get to where we are because we were idiots. We got to where we are because we actually were trying to make the world better. It's just yeah. we made the world better in one sense uh, without realizing it made the world much worse in some other sense. But, you know, we, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that we need to deny the fact that we actually were pursuing noble goals. I mean, like you say, there is a, a huge paradox in here. Um, 
um, in early on in the pandemic, you know, I was having a lot of trouble trying to write and create. And I was mm. just being driven by, torn by all these um, feelings of, of despair, really. Uh, you know, one of the things about being a sci-fi writer is um, you do sort of buy into this idea, this optimistic idea that in the face of crisis, there's only one humanity with a capital H. Um, we don't have nations. We don't have political parties. We don't have all these sources of artificial division. We can come together as one capital H humanity. That's sort of an unspoken faith among a lot of sci-fi writers, no matter how dystopian they may be on the surface. And I've been accused of being dystopian <laughs> many times, but I, I have that faith. Um, but, you know, that faith was really challenged by this pandemic. I mean, you know, just let's ignore the world for a minute. Let's ignore the finger pointing. Let's just focus on our country. Um, you would think, you know, our country at least can come together against the pandemic. But, uh, you know, do I really need to say more? <laughs> you know, look, yeah. look at the news. That is not right. what happened. Right. We're literally become... seeing some people interpret it one way, other people interpret it another way, politicist, like it just is, yep. has it, amplified it has become... all the problems, not brought us together. Right. You you would think with something like the pandemic, it ought to be a, a, a thing around which we rally as a nation. It, it has totally not been that. It's been the exact opposite. So, yeah. so for those of us yeah. who are believers in that sort of idea of humans coming together, it's it's a real, you know, wake up call. You know, I, I felt like, you know, somebody dumped a bucket of ice water on me <laughs> when this happened. Yeah. So I was unable to write anything for a long time. Um, and so during that process, I, I went back to look at children's stories, stories I used to read to my daughters when they were little and to see if I can discover some sort of source of comfort. And what I realized is, is this, um, the stories we tell our children or the stories we intend to to uh, pass on to our children are in some ways stories that in, embody our most treasured values, right? Mm -hmm. Because we care about these so much that we're, we're, we want children to get them as soon as they're able to read. And so I, you know, I went through things like The Hobbit, uh, Frog and Toad, uh, Good Night Moon, you know, these books trying to mm -hmm. discover what, what are the values? Because, you know, I'm a big believer in that values are not passed on in the abstract. We don't you know, explain what courage or patriotism is to children by reading them a dictionary definition. We do so by telling them a story about somebody being courageous, somebody being patriotic, somebody being just and merciful, and so on and so forth. Stories are how we pass on values, not mm. abstractions. So I read these stories, and I realized that they do come out with a set of values. Um, you know, uh, you read Winnie the Pooh or, or, or really any sort of children's story, and 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 a certain set of values emerge and, and they're all really interesting. There, there are values about how it's important, much more important to have friends who are close by, who you can see on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. They're about how important it is to play, to enjoy play, to actually just not worry about the next day. Um, you know, Frog and Toad, you know, what does Frog uh, put on the to-do list? Go see Toad. Uh, go take a walk. <laughs> Sit down and tell a story. Um, you know, what does Winnie the Pooh want? Uh, I want to go see Piglet. We're going to go sit in the thoughtful spot today and sit together for a little bit. These are things we care about. We, we want to have some control of our environment. We want to have a comfortable hobbit hole that we dug out ourselves. Mm. Um, we want to have uh, the ability to shape and control our lives a little bit. No those around us mm. to really 
feel that sense of intimacy and vulnerability and connectedness to them. Uh, when um, uh, Eeyore is sad, everybody wants to go and comfort him, even if we know we can't really do it, but we want to be there for him. So I, I read through all these and I was like, oh, so much of this is exactly what I was thinking about. They're about how we want things to be human scale. We want things to be understandable. Um, but at the same time, right, as you were saying earlier, so many of us live lives that are the very opposite of that. And not because we're stupid, but because we were driven by a similar set of desires, right? Most of us do not live in the same towns we were born in. Most of us do not, in fact, um, live in a place where everything we need is within a half kilometer and we can walk to it. Most of us do not, in fact, uh, live in a situation where we get to see our friends on a daily basis, let alone the pandemic. It's just not. Um, we end up moving, migrating, and become nomads because we are driven to seek out those who can become our families of choice, not families of birth, who can become our communities of 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 uh, shared passion, not just communities of accidental assignment. Mm. These are important values to us too, that we have that freedom to choose, to move. So is there some way to preserve the benefits of localism, of connectedness, of rootedness, mm. while also giving us the same benefits of being able to migrate and move in a, in a, in a non-physical sense, to connect with others of like-mindedness. Is there some way to do this? Um, these, these seem like two opposite things, but, but they're, really, they're really driven by the same desire to yeah. connect. Yeah. Is there some way to do this without relying on things like international flying around in jets and driving around in terrible expensive cars on concrete roads and asphalt roads that destroy uh, the environment? Is there some way to do all of this without um, creating a monster like Facebook. You know, can mm. we can we mm. do all of this somehow? Mm. This seems to me to be the central challenge of modernity. Can mm. we embrace the benefits of connection without building things into inhumanly scaled monsters? Yeah. We, we, we have to be able to connect without creating um, these mega scale structures that are ultimately cancerous and destructive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's the, like my, in a sense, the question you're asking strikes me as it strikes me as the mission that we hadn't been con we didn't need to be conscious of until our, the systems we have built are now forcing us to be conscious of it because those two That's polarities right. you identified there was just sort of a feeling, I think, that we could just just keep, if we just kept getting more efficient, eventually everything would click into place. But what we've discovered instead is we just keep separating ourselves more and more from each other, from, from nature, from our own, our own natural condition. And are left with this really huge boondoggle of a, of a global system that that now we it sort of seems like we're at a really perilous moment in our collective in that collective journey like can we if we even begin to orient around the question that you're asking versus the question of efficiency or the question of of profit or all the other kind of little memes that have kind of set us racing off in other directions that just even that reorientation 
I suspect that people would start to see new possibilities that that are not are not currently available to us because we're so acculturated to this go 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 win 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 at all costs sort of idea of what it means to have a global network. I think we are starting to ask these questions. I mean, if anything, you know, I do feel like the pandemic has forced all of us to reckon with the fact that we've created an incredibly fragile global system that does not actually function. Um, the and 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 I think many of us are starting to question why it is that GDP is talked about so much when it doesn't actually measure any of the things we care about. Uh, you know, it measures nothing we care about. It nothing we care about. It the fact that A has given something of value to B in exchange for money does not tell us anything about whether that thing that was exchanged was, you know. Did anything good made anybody happier? Uh, uh, made anybody feel more connected? Made anybody anything? I mean, you know, one of the happier things um, that my uh, that I see people do is, you know, my daughters go around playing Animal Crossing, and they don't actually play Animal Crossing the way that I I would have done it. I mean, this is actually a great story. <laughs> so during the pandemic, my daughters and I became hooked on Animal Crossing because, <laughs> so sweet. you know, we couldn't go anywhere. And sure. this is one of the things, few things we can do to escape the relentless horrors as, uh, of, of what was going on outside the, the house. So <clears throat> me being the typical person I am, I mean, I, I think I think most people can get a sense of who I am when they know that I had a career as a software engineer and a lawyer and a technology consultant and all this stuff while writing. So uh, you know, the type that really cares about grades and and, and yeah. getting things done, yeah. quote unquote. So so the way I play Animal Crossing is, I'm sure you can imagine, it's it's <laughs> make the most money possible, get the biggest structures, do it quickly. What is the most efficient way to get the most things done? Actions per minute. You know, it's, yeah. it's very yeah. much about that, and and it's all about why is this interface so inefficient? You know, I I need to be able to do more. Um, that's that's me. My daughters take a completely different approach. They they do not care about any of that. They don't care about uh, going up and accomplishing and achieving things the game drives you to do. What they care about is basically go to Harv's Island where they put on Tableau Vivant, you know, with all the characters and put on little scenes. They're like, we're going to create a, a classroom scene today. We're going to oh, create a little... Uh, we're going to create a parade today. Today, we're going to set up a clinic to give everybody coronavirus tests, you know, things oh, like that. I know, it's very cute. Uh, so they just do this, and I'm sort of like, that's not how you're supposed to play. And they're like, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I guess you're right. So my daughters do not care about GDP or efficiency, uh, the way they play yeah. Animal Crossing. And I did, and I was like, gosh, they're having way more fun than I am. You know, this is just like, this is not measured. The game does not recognize this as an accomplishment, but you know, it, nonetheless, they seem to be getting much more out of this than I was. So it, it really forced me to rethink a lot of this. Uh, wow. The obsession with accomplishing things and, and efficiency—they don't care about bells, you know. It's just like it's great. They. <laughs> it's a great. Yeah, it's such, and it's such a wonderful metaphor for the, for that the moment in which. Every child has has a measure of freedom from the past, a measure of freedom from how we think things are supposed to be, right? Like you can almost see your you for all your success, I hear in that story that you have kind of 
onboarded or or internalized <laughs> exactly. a lot of the a lot of the very things you're now realizing are a huge source of the problem, right? And they just exactly. haven't internalized that yet. I, I think this is one of those lifelong journey things. You can you can say you know I recognize that you got to do it out of love, not fear. I recognize you got to not care about this stuff, but. You know, it's a lifetime of of that sort of thinking that got you to where you are. So, how easy is it for you to be free of it? It's not. It's a lifelong thing to slowly journey to the point where you're happier. Um, but you know, that's that's the way it is. I love that your story, uh, the hidden girl, the the sort of tight, the titular story of this collection. It's just occurring to me in this moment that, in a sense, this story is about that. Like we have a character who is raised in one context is is sort of pulled out of that context by force and put into another context and said, now this is what's true. And by the end of the story, she makes a choice with the weight of all of that pressure of where she came from and then how she was raised and the love she felt towards this person who kidnapped her and raised her and trained her to be a a weapon of destruction. And then the choice she made to use those skills to make a difference in the world as best as she was able. I mean, just like to me, it's it's embodying the invitation you're giving everyone. How do we as individuals in this, in the, in the global interconnected context we live in make choices that are in service of some greater good or some truth or some purpose that we can connect to? Or, or just a sense of, of living a more authentic life for ourselves. Right. I mean, it's, it's that, and I mean, what is this all about, really? Surely we don't actually think, if we, you know, sat down and thought about it, surely we don't actually believe that accumulating bells or, you know, um, uh, or or fame or what have you is what this is about. I mean, ultimately, we do want this life to mean something in the sense of creating some positive story about ourselves, a sense that we have told the story we wanted to tell, right? I mean, my point is human beings have this inborn, driven uh, desire to tell stories. Uh, You know, one of the things I sort of make a point of is to, to, to make a metaphor about how all of us are the heroes of our own life epic fantasies um you know human human lives are in fact collections of randomness you know if you think about how you met your spouse uh how you ended up in the career you are pursuing how you ended up um uh becoming best friends with the person you are close to so much of that is driven by fortuitous chance it's easily could have gone a different way you know had my wife not interviewed at my company we never would have met uh none of the all of these things are so random it's it's by chance and and but nonetheless that's not how we understand our lives we human beings don't treat lives that way we actually construct a narrative for ourselves we actually have a story to explain how we became who we are we assign causes to effects. We, we, we create a character arc for ourselves in a plot. And this is not an illusion. This is not, I'm not saying this is somehow not real. It is real. This is actually how human beings understand the world. And this is the only way we make sense of the world. We are constantly narrating a story of our own journey to make sense of it. This is what gives us life meaning when we're, you know, older. Um, we look back and 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 say, what is the story about my life? What is the story I'm telling my children? What is the story I'm telling myself? What is the story I 
can tell my parents when I'm dead? What what is the story that I'm telling God? What what are these? What is my life's epic fantasy? We are, you know, the heroes of our own epic fantasies. And and one of the things that I um I I really um take to heart is the idea that we're not only the heroes of our own epic fantasy, we also play important roles in other people's mm. epic fantasies. So for mm. example, if you think about things like, you know, courage or or some value you care about, courage, love, mercy, whatever. For me, you know, let's take love for an example. When I think about love, right, what comes to mind is not the dictionary definition, as I mentioned earlier, but a concrete scene, which is of my grandmother when I was very young, maybe three or four. And I remember seeing her sitting next to a, a, a light bulb, just a bare light bulb, and she was knitting a sweater. And her hands were very, um, uh, you know, her she had of arthritis. So her fingers were crooked and, and I could see that her skin was cracked because it was really cold. And, uh, and so I asked her, you know, grandma, does it, does that hurt when you're, when you're knitting the sweater? And she says, yeah, it does. And I said, mm. okay, but why are you doing it? And she says, well, I don't want you to be cold. Mm. And, you know, that to me is whenever I think about love, I think about that. And I think we all have stories mm. like that where we think about something important and we think about, we have a memory of somebody important to us doing that, you know, for courage, do we think about, you know, our friend when we were younger sticking up and, and standing behind to protect us when there was a bully coming after us? You know, mm. we think about these things. Mm. These these are the images that give meaning to 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 these words. And so, or you know, take take the fact that I was um I was a, a law clerk after law school uh for a federal judge. And you know, this was my first uh, job in the law and I did not know what I was doing. I was terrified um, and, and I was making tons of mistakes. And my judge, you know, called me into chambers and, and just sort of said, you know, I hire you not because I think you know what you're doing. I hire you because I believe you can learn. None of us is born knowing how to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I know you're very worried, but you have to trust yourself that I hire you because I believe you can learn. You, you, you have to be patient with yourself and work through these cases one by one and tell me what your analysis is. This is why I'm hiring you. Um, and, you know, she's done this, I'm sure, with hundreds of young lawyers, uh, you know, as a mentor over the years, but it meant a lot to me. You know, this is, this to me is, is what it means to be a supportive boss. This, this is what it meant to be a, a teacher, a, a good teacher, a mentor. And whenever I try to mentor younger writers, I try to think about that, about what she did for me. So this is how life is. You know, we acquire these values from other people who play the role of gods and heroes in our own epic fantasies. But we go on to enact these stories and become the gods and heroes of those who come after us. This is how human beings move on generation to generation. We must become a story worthy of ourselves, of those who loved us. Mm. We must love others to, to be worthy of those who loved us. You know, it's, it's that same kind of idea. Um, and, and, and I, I think that this is something that really matters a lot to me, uh, more so as a result of the pandemic. Uh, that to me is sort of the central value of, of what it means to be a human being to, to, not so worry so much about GDP, about what other people will say about you in newspapers and, and whatnot, but to 
be really focused on, on, on answering the question, have I loved others in a way that's worthy of those who loved us? Hmm. Oh, Ken. That, in the same way that hearing you speak three or four years ago at Hollyhock was exactly what I needed to hear, I feel like what you just shared was exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm tuning into the possibility, although I don't know if you've made this connection, but I'm certainly making it right now that as I look, so I have, I have the hidden girl and other stories open in front of me and, I, and I'm looking at the title of all of these, all the stories I've just read through over the past week or so. And, and what I'm encountering in these stories are, are narrative versions, really complex, nuanced, not always easy to read because some of them, they, they show violence and differing opinions and all the stuff that's there, but they're, they seem to me to be a kind of version of what your grandmother did for you. They sort of seem to me to be a version of, look, the world is really complex and we have made for ourselves a bed that we may not be able to keep lying in, except here's, here's what it might mean for us to stay human and be human and connect to these values in the midst of all the different ways that this could go. And I just Absolutely. feel like really, really grateful for that because it has been a, a cathartic for me to read like, oh, well, here's one version where the singularity happens and everything collapses. And here's another version where the singularity happens and some people take off and others, don't, you know, like there's just all these ways in which you seem to be totally agnostic about what, whatever happens, it's going to be massive. And no matter what, if we can stay human through it, there's something really special about that. That's absolutely true. All my stories are really ultimately about how do you remain human in the face of cataclysmic change? And I think that's one of those very important um, uh, universal messages and, and, and stories that we're always trying to figure out for ourselves. Because, you know, there is no constant in life other than change. There will always be revolutions and, and, and incredible tumultuous changes. And, and we always have to figure out how do we remain human? How do we love those that we love and, and, and be worthy uh, of the stories that animate us, that give mm -hmm. our soul meaning? Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we keep that um, and pass it on to the next generation? Mm -hmm. mm. We're coming up on time. I knew this would happen. I have literally like <laughs> so many other things I want to talk to you about. I'm, I, I, if you if you don't have it handy or you don't want to put on the spot, just say no. But I would love if you're up for it. The last story in your in this collection is called The Cutting. Yeah. And, and I feel I can see why your editor put this story last. You said, you know, you mentioned that a kind of meta journey or a meta structure emerged across all these stories. And um it's just it's just so wonderful. And I'd wonder if you'd be willing to read that to to close this out today. Uh, I, I love to, but the problem is it's one of those stories that's actually very hard to read because <laughs> it's uh, so. So just to explain what's yeah, going on, um, yeah. it's a story that um, it, it's the same story retold three times, each time with fewer words. Yeah. Literally, it's about words being cut out of the manuscript. Uh, I, I can try to read it, um, uh, but it's one of those things where I think the audiobook does not quite give you the full sense of it but but i i will try uh and, and, and and yeah i would love to i think that i love that you're up for the experiment and maybe before you do i'll just say to those who are listening this is a uh, on the printed page this is a four page story and by the second half of the second page we see visually that cutting that 
that you'll hear described in the first part. So there's this way in which you can see what you can't hear. But I, I, I want to invite the readers to just imagine, it's almost like finding a poem inside of a newspaper article, like this way in which you could, That's right. you could sort of extract kernels of beauty and possibility from something that is not what it was when it was first created. And so that, right. like, to me, that kind of excavation of our past so that we might live towards a new future is, is this theme that's jumping out, which is why I asked you to read it. So yeah, I'd love it. Okay. If you to give it a shot, I think it'd be great. I, I well, I, I will read cutting. Uh, so, um, here it goes. Uh, you can find the story in my collection, The Hidden Girl and Other Stories, um, published in the U.S. by Saga Press. At the top of the mountain, far above the clouds, the monks of the Temple of Shu spent their days cutting words from their holy book. The monks' faith originated a long time ago. They deduced this by the parchment on which the book is written, which is brittle, wrinkled, damaged by water in places so that the writing is hard to read. The abbot, the oldest monk in the temple, recalls that the book already looked like that when he was a very young novice. The book was written by people who walked and talked with the gods. The trembling abbot pauses to let his words sink into the hearts of the young monks sitting in neat rows before him. They recorded that they recorded what they remembered of their experiences. And so to read the book is to hear the voices of the gods again. The young monks touched their foreheads to the stone floor, their hands splayed open in prayer. But the monks also know that the gods often spoke obscurely and human memory is a fragile and delicate instrument. Think of the face of a childhood friend, the abbot says. Hold that image in your minds and write a description of it, giving as much detail as you can marshal. Now, think of that face again. It has changed subtly in your memory. The words you used to describe that face has replaced some portion of your memory of it. The act of remembering is an act of retracing, and by doing so, we erase and change the stencil. So it was with the people who composed the book. In their zeal and fervor, they wrote what they believed to be the truth, but they got many things wrong. They were only human. We study and meditate upon the words of the book so that we may excavate the truth buried in layers of metaphor. The abbot strokes his long white beard. And so each year, the monks, after many rounds of debates, agree upon additional words to cut out of the book. The bits of excised parchment are then burnt as an offering to the gods. In this way, as they prone away the excess to reveal the book beneath the book, the story behind the story, the monks believe that they are also communing with the gods. Over the decades, the book has grown ever lighter, its pages riddled with holes, openings, voids where words once rested, like filigree, like lace, like a dissolving honeycomb. We strive not to remember, but to forget, the abbot says, as he cuts out as he cuts out another word from the book. Faith is brittle, damaged by people who sink in neat rows. Experience, touch, pray. 
Know that memory is fragile and delicate. Childhood is retracing. The people who were buried in layers of metaphor agree upon holes, openings, voids. Strive to remember, to forget. Remember to forget. Mm. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Yeah, so beautiful, and so powerful, and so resonant with everything we've touched on today. I hope that readers will go out and buy a copy and and see the story that they just heard, because the seeing it has its own emotional and visceral effect. But um, yeah, it was awesome today. Literally, as I said, I, I've been reading this the past week, and I finished this story maybe an hour before you and I were to speak, and it just it just really moved me to be in contact with this invitation to pay attention to where we come from, but also with an eye towards our own agency to create where we're going. And I hope that in the midst of whatever comes next for us as a species, as a global civilization with hopefully more of the local connections that you're inviting us towards, I hope that we find a way through and that somewhere a thousand years from now, there are still people around who are having these kinds of engagements that the abbot and the monks are having in their path. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah. So Ken, uh, if people want to find out more about your writing and your work, where uh, like I'll, I'll put it all in the show notes and stuff, but if they want to find you online, where should they go to? So the best place to go is uh, my website, kenlu.name. That's K-E-N-L-I-U dot N-A-M-E. Uh, they can sign up for my newsletter there, which is um, uh, basically where I uh, tell um stories about my process and give you updates on what's happening. Uh, it's probably the easiest, most efficient way to find out what's going on. Um, or they can follow me on Twitter. Um, although, uh, I don't really say much there. <laughs> it tends to be a place where I sort of, uh, stay, uh, in touch with fans, uh, who have questions about my work for me. Uh, but that's, that's about it. Um, and those are the main places that I communicate with folks. Lovely. And if you sign up for Ken's newsletter, I can attest that you'll see all of the really amazing creative work that you're doing in the world. You're, you're, um, you, you recently finished Ink on the Page for your, the, the final book in your big trilogy. Is that right? That's right. I, I, so, um, uh, this will mean almost nothing to folks who are not in publishing, but the final, the concluding volumes of my giant epic fantasy, uh, the Dendron Dynasty, those two, the final volumes are now in copy edits, um, which means essentially that they the the, the book is substantively done uh, at this point. It's a matter of correcting typos and such. Um, so, very excited to have these books out next year. Uh, uh, these these books are very much about all the things that we talked about: yeah. storytelling, um, generational, um, what it means to love someone, to be worthy of those who love you, um, and uh, and and. Um, technology and, and, and scaling and localism um, and what it means to create out of love rather than fear. Um, all of those things. I, I put everything in there. Yeah, I really, for anyone who has any draw towards fantasy or science fiction, like if you liked uh, Game of Thrones, whether watching it or reading it, then then you're going to love the Dandelion Dynasty books. And I can't wait to, to read the third in the series. It's been... It's remarkable to see the two central characters in the first book and the legacies that they left and how those legacies 
have interplayed in the second book. So I'm really excited to see what happens in the final final volume. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Ken, what a treat. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, uh, it's been a real pleasure. I can't wait to share this with the world. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.